Chapter Five of Jungle Tales of Tarzan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Jungle Tales of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Five: Tarzan and the Black Boy. Tarzan of the Apes sat at the foot of a great tree, braiding a new grass rope. Beside him lay the frayed remnants of the old one, torn and severed by the fangs and talons of Sheeta the panther. Only half the original rope was there, the balance having been carried off by the angry cat as he bounded away through the jungle with the noose still about his savage neck and the loose end dragging among the underbrush. Tarzan smiled as he recalled Sheeta's great rage, his frantic efforts to free himself from the entangling strands, his uncanny screams that were part hate, part anger, part terror. He smiled in retrospection at the discomfiture of his enemy, and in anticipation of another day as he added an extra strand to his new rope. This would be the strongest, the heaviest rope that Tarzan of the Apes ever had fashioned. Visions of Numa the lion straining futilely in its embrace thrilled the ape-man. He was quite content, for his hands and his brain were busy. Content, too, were his fellows of the tribe of Kerchak, searching for food in the clearing and the surrounding trees about him. No perplexing thoughts of the future burdened their minds, and only occasionally dimly arose recollections of the near past. They were stimulated to a species of brutal content by the delectable business of filling their bellies. Afterward they would sleep. It was their life, and they enjoyed it as we enjoy ours, you and I, as Tarzan enjoyed his. Possibly they enjoyed theirs more than we enjoy ours, for who shall say that the beasts of the jungle do not better fulfill the purposes for which they are created than does man with his many excursions into strange fields and his contraventions of the laws of nature? And what gives greater content and greater happiness than the fulfilling of a destiny? As Tarzan worked, Gazan, Tika's little Balu, played about him while Tika sought food upon the opposite side of the clearing. No more did Tika, the mother, or Tog, the sullen sire, harbor suspicions of Tarzan's intentions toward their firstborn. Had he not courted death to save their Gazan from the fangs and talons of Sheeta? Did he not fondle and cuddle the little one with even as great a show of affection as Tika herself displayed? Their fears were allayed, and Tarzan now found himself often in the role of nursemaid to a tiny anthropoid, an avocation which he found by no means irksome, since Gazan was a never-failing fount of surprises and entertainment. Just now the apeling was developing those arboreal tendencies which were to stand him in such good stead during the years of his youth, when rapid flight into the upper terraces was of far more importance and value than his undeveloped muscles and untried fighting fangs. Backing off fifteen or twenty feet from the bole of the tree beneath the branches of which Tarzan worked upon his rope, Gazan scampered quickly forward, scrambling nimbly upward to the lower limbs. Here he would squat for a moment or two, quite proud of his achievement, and then clamber to the ground again and repeat. Sometimes, quite often in fact, for he was an ape, his attention was distracted by other things, a beetle, a caterpillar, a tiny field mouse, and off he would go in pursuit. The caterpillars he always caught, and sometimes the beetles, 
but the field mice never. Now he discovered the tail of the rope upon which Tarzan was working. Grasping it in one small hand, he bounced away, for all the world like an animated rubber ball, snatching it from the ape-man's hand and running off across the clearing. Tarzan leaped to his feet and was in pursuit in an instant, no trace of anger on his face or in his voice as he called to the roguish little balu to drop his rope. Straight toward his mother raced Gazan, and after him came Tarzan. Tika looked up from her feeding, and in the first instant that she realized that Gazan was fleeing and that another was in pursuit, she bared her fangs and bristled. But when she saw that the pursuer was Tarzan, she turned back to the business that had been occupying her attention. At her very feet the ape-man overhauled the balu, and though the youngster squealed and fought when Tarzan seized him, Tika only glanced casually in their direction. No longer did she fear harm to her firstborn at the hands of the ape-man. Had he not saved Gazan on two occasions? Rescuing his rope, Tarzan returned to his tree and resumed his labor, but thereafter it was necessary to watch carefully the playful Balu, who was now possessed to steal it whenever he thought his great smooth-skinned cousin was momentarily off his guard. But even under this handicap Tarzan finally completed the rope, a long, pliant weapon, stronger than any he had ever made before. The discarded piece of his former one he gave to Gazan for a plaything, for Tarzan had it in his mind to instruct Tika's Balu after ideas of his own, when the youngster should be old and strong enough to profit by his precepts. At present the little ape's innate aptitude for mimicry would be sufficient to familiarize him with Tarzan's ways and weapons, and so the ape-man swung off into the jungle, his new rope coiled over one shoulder, while little Gazan hopped about the clearing dragging the old one after him in childish glee. As Tarzan traveled, dividing his quest for food with one for a sufficiently noble quarry whereupon to test his new weapon, his mind often was upon Gazan. The ape-man had realized a deep affection for Tika's Balu almost from the first, partly because the child belonged to Tika, his first love, and partly for the little ape's own sake, and Tarzan's human longing for some sentient creature upon which to expend those natural affections of the soul which are inherent to all normal members of the genus Homo. Tarzan envied Tika. It was true that Gazan evidenced a considerable reciprocation of Tarzan's fondness for him, even preferring him to his own surly sire but to Tika the little one turned when in pain or terror, when tired or hungry. Then it was that Tarzan felt quite alone in the world, and longed desperately for one who should turn first to him for succor and protection. Tog had Tika, Tika had Gazan, and nearly every other bull and cow of the tribe of Kerchak had one or more to love and by whom to be loved. Of course Tarzan could scarcely formulate the thought in precisely this way. He only knew that he craved something which was denied him, something which seemed to be represented by those relations which existed between Tika and her Balu, and so he envied Tika and longed for a Balu of his own. He saw Sheeta and his mate with their little family of three, and deeper inland toward the rocky hills, where one might lie up during the heat of the day in the dense shade of a tangled thicket close under the cool face of an overhanging rock, Tarzan had found the lair of Numa the lion, and of Saber the lioness. 
Here he had watched them with their little balus, playful creatures, spotted, leopard-like, and he had seen the young fawn with Bara the deer, with Buto the rhinoceros, its ungainly little one. Each of the creatures of the jungle had its own, except Tarzan. It made the ape-man sad to think upon this thing, sad and lonely, but presently the scent of game cleared his young mind of all other considerations, as cat-like he crawled far out upon a bending limb above the game trail which led down to the ancient watering-place of the wild things of this wild world. How many thousands of times had this great old limb bent to the savage form of some bloodthirsty hunter in the long years that it had spread its leafy branches above the deep-worn jungle path! Tarzan the ape-man, Sheeta the panther, and Hista the snake it knew well. They had worn smooth the bark upon its upper surface. Today it was Horta the boar which came down toward the watcher in the old tree, Horta the boar, whose formidable tusks and diabolical temper preserved him from all but the most ferocious or most famished of the largest carnivora. But to Tarzan meat was meat. Naught that was edible or tasty might pass a hungry Tarzan unchallenged and unattacked. In hunger, as in battle, the ape-man outsavaged the dreariest denizens of the jungle. He knew neither fear nor mercy, except upon rare occasions when some strange inexplicable force stayed his hand, a force inexplicable to him, perhaps, because of his ignorance of his own origin and of all the forces of humanitarianism and civilization that were his rightful heritage because of that origin. So today, instead of staying his hand until a less formidable feast found its way toward him, Tarzan dropped his new noose about the neck of Horta the boar. It was an excellent test for the untried strands. The angered boar bolted this way and that, but each time the new rope held him where Tarzan had made it fast about the stem of the tree above the branch from which he had cast it. As Horta grunted and charged, slashing the sturdy jungle patriarch with his mighty tusks until the bark flew in every direction, Tarzan dropped to the ground behind him. In the ape-man's hand was the long, keen blade that had been his constant companion since that distant day upon which chance had directed its point into the body of Bolgani, the gorilla, and saved the torn and bleeding man-child from what else had been certain death. Tarzan walked in toward Horta, who swung now to face his enemy. Mighty and muscled as was the young giant, it yet would have appeared but the maddest folly for him to face so formidable a creature as Horta the boar, armed only with a slender hunting-knife. So it would have seemed to one who knew Horta even slightly, and Tarzan not at all. For a moment Horta stood motionless, facing the ape-man. His wicked deep-set eyes flashed angrily. He shook his lord head. Mud-eater, jeered the ape-man, wallower in filth. Even your meat stinks, but it is juicy and makes Tarzan strong. Today I shall eat your heart, O lord of the great tusks, that it shall keep savage that which pounds against my own ribs. Horta, understanding nothing of what Tarzan said, was none the less enraged because of that. He saw only a naked man-thing, hairless and futile, pitting his puny fangs and soft muscles against his own indomitable savagery, and he charged. Tarzan of the Apes waited until the upcut of a wicked tusk would have laid open his thigh. Then he moved, just the least bit to one side, 
but so quickly that lightning was a sluggard by comparison, and as he moved he stooped low, and with all the great power of his right arm drove the long blade of his father's hunting-knife straight into the heart of Horta the boar. A quick leap carried him from the zone of the creature's death-throes, and a moment later the hot and dripping heart of Horta was in his grasp. His hunger satisfied, Tarzan did not seek a lying-up place for sleep, as was sometimes his way, but continued on through the jungle, more in search of adventure than of food, for today he was restless. And so it came that he turned his footsteps toward the village of Mabonga, the black chief, whose people Tarzan had baited remorselessly since that day upon which Kulonga, the chief's son, had slain Kala. A river winds close beside the village of the black men. Tarzan reached its side a little below the clearing where squat the thatched huts of the negroes. The river life was ever fascinating to the ape-man. He found pleasure in watching the ungainly antics of Duro the hippopotamus, and keen sport in tormenting the sluggish crocodile Gimla as he basked in the sun. Then, too, there were the shes and the balus of the black men of the Gomangani to frighten as they squatted by the river, the shes with their meager washing, the balus with their primitive toys. This day he came upon a woman and her child farther downstream than usual. The former was searching for a species of shellfish which was to be found in the mud close to the river bank. She was a young black woman of about thirty. Her teeth were filed to sharp points, for her people ate the flesh of man. Her underlip was slit that it might support a rude pendant of copper, which she had worn for so many years that the lip had been dragged downward to prodigious lengths, exposing the teeth and gums of her lower jaw. Her nose, too, was slit, and through the slit was a wooden skewer. Metal ornaments dangled from her ears and upon her forehead and cheeks. Upon her chin and the bridge of her nose were tattooings in colors that were mellowed now by age. She was naked except for a girdle of grasses about her waist. Altogether she was very beautiful in her own estimation, and even in the estimation of the men of Mbonga's tribe, though she was of another people, a trophy of war seized in her maidenhood by one of Mbonga's fighting men. Her child was a boy of ten, lithe, straight, and for a black handsome. Tarzan looked upon the two from the concealing foliage of a nearby bush. He was about to leap forth before them with a terrifying scream, that he might enjoy the spectacle of their terror and their incontinent flight. But of a sudden a new whim seized him. Here was a balu fashioned as he himself was fashioned. Of course this one's skin was black, but what of it? Tarzan had never seen a white man. In so far as he knew, he was the sole representative of that strange form of life upon the earth. The black boy should make an excellent balu for Tarzan, since he had none of his own. He would tend him carefully, feed him well, protect him as only Tarzan of the apes could protect his own, and teach him out of his half-human, half-bestial lore the secrets of the jungle from its rotting surface vegetation to the high-tossed pinnacles of the forest's upper terraces. Tarzan uncoiled his rope and shook out the noose, the two before him, all ignorant of the near presence of that terrifying form, continued preoccupied in the search for shellfish, 
poking about in the mud with short sticks. Tarzan stepped from the jungle behind them. His noose lay open upon the ground beside him. There was a quick movement of the right arm, and the noose rose gracefully into the air, hovered an instant above the head of the unsuspecting youth, then settled. As it encompassed his body below the shoulders, Tarzan gave a quick jerk that tightened it about the boy's arms, pinioning them to his sides. A scream of terror broke from the lad's lips, and as his mother turned, affrighted at his cry, she saw him being dragged quickly toward a great white giant who stood just beneath the shade of a nearby tree, scarcely a dozen long paces from her. With a savage cry of terror and rage, the woman leaped fearlessly toward the ape-man. In her mien, Tarzan saw determination and courage which would shrink not even from death itself. She was very hideous and frightful even when her face was in repose, but convulsed by passion her expression became terrifyingly fiendish. Even the ape-man drew back, but more in revulsion than fear. Fear he knew not. Biting and kicking was the black she's balu as Tarzan tucked him beneath his arm and vanished into the branches hanging low above him, just as the infuriated mother dashed forward to seize and do battle with him and as he melted away into the depth of the jungle with his still-struggling prize, he meditated upon the possibilities which might lie in the prowess of the Gomangani were the he's as formidable as the she's. Once at a safe distance from the despoiled mother, and out of earshot of her screams and menaces, Tarzan paused to inspect his prize, now so thoroughly terrorized that he had ceased his struggles and his outcries. The frightened child rolled his eyes fearfully toward his captor, until the white showed gleaming all about the irises. "'I am Tarzan,' said the ape-man in the vernacular of the anthropoids. "'I will not harm you. You are to be Tarzan's Baalu. Tarzan will protect you. He will feed you. The best in the jungle shall be for Tarzan's Baalu, for Tarzan is a mighty hunter. None need you fear, not even Numa the lion.' for Tarzan is a mighty fighter, none so great as Tarzan, son of Kala. Do not fear. But the child only whimpered and trembled, for he did not understand the tongue of the great apes, and the voice of Tarzan sounded him like the barking and growling of a beast. Then, too, he had heard stories of this bad white forest god. It was he who had slain Kulonga and others of the warriors of Mabonga the chief, it was he who entered the village stealthily, by magic in the darkness of the night, to steal arrows and poison, and frighten the women and the children, and even the great warriors. Doubtless this wicked god fed upon little boys. Had his mother not said as much when he was naughty, and she threatened to give him to the white god of the jungle if he were not good? Little black Tybo shook as with ague. "'Are you cold, Gobu-Balu?' asked Tarzan, using the simian equivalent of black he-baby in lieu of a better name. "'The sun is hot. Why do you shiver?' Tybo could not understand, but he cried for his mamma, and begged the great white god to let him go, promising always to be a good boy thereafter if his plea were granted. Tarzan shook his head. Not a word could he understand. This would never do. He must teach Gobu-Balu a language which sounded like talk. It was quite certain to Tarzan that Gobu-Balu's speech was not talk at all. 
It sounded quite as senseless as the chattering of the silly birds. It would be best, thought the ape-man, quickly to get him among the tribe of Kerchak, where he would hear the Mangani talking among themselves. Thus he would soon learn an intelligible form of speech. Tarzan rose to his feet upon the swaying branch where he had halted far above the ground and motioned to the child to follow him. But Tybo only clung tightly to the bole of the tree and wept. Being a boy and a native African, he had, of course, climbed into trees many times before this, but the idea of racing off through the forest, leaping from one branch to another, as his captor, to his horror, had done when he had carried Tybo away from his mother, filled his childish heart with terror. Tarzan sighed. His newly acquired balu had much indeed to learn. It was pitiful that a balu of his size and strength should be so backward. He tried to coax Tybo to follow him, but the child dared not, so Tarzan picked him up and carried him upon his back. Tybo, no longer scratched or bit, escape seemed impossible. Even now, were he set upon the ground, the chance was remote, he knew, that he could find his way back to the village of Mabonga the chief. Even if he could, there were the lions and the leopards and the hyenas, any one of which, as Tybo was well aware, was particularly fond of the meat of little black boys. So far the terrible white god of the jungle had offered him no harm. He could not expect even this much consideration from the frightful green-eyed man-eaters. It would be the lesser of two evils, then, to let the white god carry him away without scratching and biting, as he had done at first. As Tarzan swung rapidly through the trees, little Tybo closed his eyes in terror rather than look longer down into the frightful abysses beneath. Never before in all his life had Tybo been so frightened. Yet, as the white giant sped on with him through the forest, there stole over the child an inexplicable sensation of security, as he saw how true were the leaps of the ape-man, how unerring his grasp upon the swaying limbs which gave him handhold, and then, too, there was safety in the middle terraces of the forest, far above the reach of the dreaded lions. And so Tarzan came to the clearing where the tribe fed, dropping among them with his new balu clinging tightly to his shoulders. He was fairly in the midst of them before Tybo spied a single one of the great hairy forms, or before the apes realized that Tarzan was not alone. When they saw the little Gomangani perched upon his back, some of them came forward in curiosity, with upcurled lips and snarling mien. An hour before, little Tybo would have said that he knew the uttermost depths of fear. But now, as he saw these fearsome beasts surrounding him, he realized that all that had gone before was as nothing by comparison. Why did the great white giant stand there so unconcernedly? Why did he not flee before these horrid hairy tree-men fell upon them both and tore them to pieces? And then there came to Tybo a numbing recollection. It was none other than the story he had heard passed from mouth to mouth, fearfully, by the people of Mabonga, the chief, that this great white demon of the jungle was not other than a hairless ape, for had not he been seen in company with these? Tybo could only stare in wide-eyed horror at the approaching apes. He saw their beetling brows, their great fangs, their wicked eyes. He noted their mighty muscles rolling beneath their shaggy hides, 
Their every attitude and expression was a menace. Tarzan saw this, too. He drew Tibo around in front of him. "'This is Tarzan's Gobu-Balu,' he said. "'Do not harm him, or Tarzan will kill you,' and he bared his own fangs in the teeth of the nearest ape. "'It is a Gomangani,' replied the ape. "'Let me kill it. It is a Gomangani. The Gomangani are our enemies. Let me kill it.' "'Go away,' snarled Tarzan. "'I tell you, Gunto, it is Tarzan's Balu. Go away, or Tarzan will kill you.' and the ape-man took a step toward the advancing ape. The latter sidled off, quite stiff and haughty, after the manner of a dog which meets another, and is too proud to fight and too fearful to turn his back and run. Next came Tika, prompted by curiosity. At her side skipped little Gazan. They were filled with wonder like the others, but Tika did not bare her fangs. Tarzan saw this and motioned that she approach. "'Tarzan has a balu now,' he said. "'He and Tika's balu can play together.' "'It is a Gomangani,' replied Tika. "'It will kill my balu. Take it away, Tarzan.' Tarzan laughed. "'It could not harm Pamba the rat,' he said. "'It is but a little balu, and very frightened. Let Gazan play with it.' Tika still was fearful, for with all their mighty ferocity the great anthropoids are timid, but at last, assured by her great confidence in Tarzan, she pushed Gazan forward toward the little black boy. The small ape, guided by instinct, drew back toward its mother, baring its small fangs and screaming in mingled fear and rage. Tybo, too, showed no signs of desiring a closer acquaintance with Gazan, so Tarzan gave up his efforts for the time. During the week which followed, Tarzan found his time much occupied. His balu was a greater responsibility than he had counted upon. Not for a moment did he dare leave it, since of all the tribe Tika alone could have been depended upon to refrain from slaying the hapless black had it not been for Tarzan's constant watchfulness. When the ape-man hunted he must carry Gobu Balu about with him. It was irksome, and then the little black seemed so stupid and fearful to Tarzan. It was quite helpless against even the lesser of the jungle creatures. Tarzan wondered how it had survived at all. He tried to teach it, and found a ray of hope in the fact that Gobu Balu had mastered a few words of the language of the anthropoids, and that he could now cling to a high-tossed branch without screaming in fear. But there was something about the child which worried Tarzan. He often had watched the blacks within their village. He had seen the children playing, and always there had been much laughter but little Gobu Balu never laughed. It was true that Tarzan himself never laughed. Upon occasion he smiled, grimly, but to laughter he was a stranger. The black, however, should have laughed, reasoned the ape-man. It was the way of the Gomangani. Also he saw that the little fellow often refused food and was growing thinner day by day. At times he surprised the boy, sobbing softly to himself, Tarzan tried to comfort him, even as fierce Kala had comforted Tarzan when the ape-man was a Balu, but all to no avail. Gobu Balu merely no longer feared Tarzan, that was all. He feared every other living thing within the jungle. He feared the jungle days with their long excursions through the dizzy treetops. He feared the jungle nights with their swaying, perilous couches far above the ground, 
and the grunting and coughing of the great carnivora prowling beneath him. Tarzan did not know what to do. His heritage of English blood rendered it a difficult thing even to consider a surrender of his project, though he was forced to admit to himself that his balu was not all that he had hoped. Though he was faithful to his self-imposed task, and even found that he had grown to like Gobu Balu, he could not deceive himself into believing that he felt for it that fierce heat of passionate affection which Tika revealed for Gazan, and which the black mother had shown for Gobu Balu. The little black boy, from cringing terror at the sight of Tarzan, passed by degrees into trustfulness and admiration. Only kindness had he ever received at the hands of the great white devil-god, yet he had seen with what ferocity his kindly captor could deal with others. He had seen him leap upon a certain he-ape, which persisted in attempting to seize and slay Gobu Balu. He had seen the strong white teeth of the ape-man fastened in the neck of his adversary, and the mighty muscles tensed in battle. He had heard the savage bestial snarls and roars of combat, and he had realized with a shudder that he could not differentiate between those of his guardian and those of the hairy ape. He had seen Tarzan bring down a buck, just as Numa the lion might have done, leaping upon its back and fastening his fangs in the creature's neck. Tybo had shuddered at the sight, but he had thrilled too, and for the first time there entered his dull, negroid mind a vague desire to emulate his savage foster-parent but Tybo, the little black boy, lacked the divine spark which had permitted Tarzan the white boy to benefit by his training in the ways of the fierce jungle. In imagination he was wanting, and imagination is but another name for superintelligence. Imagination it is which builds bridges and cities and empires. The beasts know it not, the blacks only a little, while to one in a hundred thousand of earth's dominant race it is given as a gift from heaven that man may not perish from the earth. While Tarzan pondered his problem concerning the future of his balu, fate was arranging to take the matter out of his hands. Mamea, Tybo's mother, grief-stricken at the loss of her boy, had consulted the tribal witch-doctor, but to no avail. The medicine he made was not good medicine, for though Momaya paid him two goats for it, it did not bring back Tybo, nor even indicate where she might search for him with reasonable assurance of finding him. Momaya, being of short temper, and of another people, had little respect for the witch-doctor of her husband's tribe, and so when he suggested that a further payment of two more fat goats would doubtless enable him to make stronger medicine, she promptly loosed her shrewish tongue upon him, and with such good effect that he was glad to take himself off with his zebra's tail and his pot of magic. When he had gone and Momea had succeeded in partially subduing her anger, she gave herself over to thought, as she so often had done since the abduction of her Tybo, in the hope that she finally might discover some feasible means of locating him, or at least assuring herself as to whether he were alive or dead. It was known to the blacks that Tarzan did not eat the flesh of man, for he had slain more than one of their number, yet never tasted the flesh of any. Two, the bodies always had been found, sometimes dropping as though from the clouds to alight in the center of the village. As Tybo's body had not been found, Momea argued that he still lived. But where? 
Then it was that there came to her mind a recollection of Bukawai, the unclean, who dwelt in a cave in the hillside to the north, and who it was well known entertained devils in his evil lair. Few, if any, had the temerity to visit old Bukawai, firstly because of fear of his black magic and the two hyenas who dwelt with him, and were commonly known to be devils masquerading, and secondly because of the loathsome disease which had caused Bukawai to be an outcast, a disease which was slowly eating away his face. Now it was that Maumea reasoned shrewdly that if any might know the whereabouts of her Tybo, it would be Bukawai, who was in friendly intercourse with gods and demons, since a demon or a god it was who had stolen her baby, but even her great mother-love was sorely taxed to find the courage to send her forth into the black jungle toward the distant hills and the uncanny abode of Bukawai, the unclean, and his devils. Mother-love, however, is one of the human passions which closely approximates to the dignity of an irresistible force. It drives the frail flesh of weak women to deeds of heroic measure. Momea was neither frail nor weak physically, but she was a woman, an ignorant, superstitious African savage. She believed in devils, in black magic, and in witchcraft. To Momea the jungle was inhabited by far more terrifying things than lions and leopards, horrifying, nameless things which possessed the power of wreaking frightful harm under various innocent guises. From one of the warriors of the village, whom she knew to have once stumbled upon the lair of Bukawai, the mother of Tybo learned how she might find it. Near a spring of water which rose in a small rocky canyon between two hills, the easternmost of which was easily recognizable because of a huge granite boulder which rested upon its summit. The westerly hill was lower than its companion, and was quite bare of vegetation except for a single mimosa tree which grew just a little below its summit. These two hills, the man assured her, could be seen for some distance before she reached them, and together formed an excellent guide to her destination. He warned her, however, to abandon so foolish and dangerous an adventure, emphasizing what she already quite well knew, that if she escaped harm at the hands of Bukawai and his demons, the chances were that she would not be so fortunate with the great carnivora of the jungle through which she must pass going and returning. The warrior even went to Maumea's husband, who, in turn, having little authority over the vixenish lady of his choice, went to Mabonga the chief. The latter summoned Maumea, threatening her with the direst punishment should she venture forth upon so unholy an excursion. The old chief's interest in the matter was due solely to that age-old alliance which exists between church and state. The local witch-doctor, knowing his own medicine better than any other knew it, was jealous of all other pretenders to accomplishments in the black art. He long had heard of the power of Bukawai, and feared lest, should he succeed in recovering Maumea's lost child, much of the tribal patronage and consequent feeds would be diverted to the unclean one. As Mabonga received, as chief, a certain proportion of the witch-doctor's fees, and could expect nothing from Bukawai, his heart and soul were quite naturally wrapped up in the orthodox church. But if Maumea could view with intrepid heart an excursion into the jungle, and a visit to the fear-haunted abode of Bukawai, 
she was not likely to be deterred by threats of future punishment at the hands of old Mbonga, whom she secretly despised. Yet she appeared to accede to his injunctions, returning to her hut in silence. She would have preferred starting upon her quest by daylight, but this was now out of the question, since she must carry food and a weapon of some sort, things which she never could pass out of the village with by day without being subjected to curious questioning that surely would come immediately to the ears of Mbonga. So Momea bided her time until night, and just before the gates of the village were closed she slipped through into the darkness and the jungle. She was much frightened, but she set her face resolutely toward the north, and though she paused often to listen breathlessly for the huge cats which here were her greatest terror, she nevertheless continued her way staunchly for several hours, until a low moan a little to her right and behind her brought her to a sudden stop. With palpitating heart the woman stood, scarce daring to breathe, and then, very faintly but unmistakable to her keen ears, came the stealthy crunching of twigs and grasses beneath padded feet. All about Maumea grew the giant trees of the tropical jungle, festooned with hanging vines and mosses. She seized upon the nearest, and started to clamber ape-like to the branches above. As she did so there was a sudden rush of a great body behind her, a menacing roar that caused the earth to tremble, and something crashed into the very creepers to which she was clinging, but below her. Momea drew herself to safety among the leafy branches, and thanked the foresight which had prompted her to bring along the dried human ear which hung from a cord about her neck. She always had known that the ear was good medicine. It had been given her when a girl by the witch-doctor of her town tribe, and was nothing like the poor weak medicine of Mbonga's witch-doctor. All night Momea clung to her perch, for although the lion sought other prey after a short time, she dared not descend into the darkness again, for fear she might encounter him or another of his kind. But at daylight she clambered down and resumed her way. Tarzan of the apes, finding that his balu never ceased to give evidence of terror in the presence of the apes of the tribe, and also that most of the adult apes were a constant menace to Gobu Balu's life, so that Tarzan dared not leave him alone with them, took to hunting with the little black boy farther and farther from the stamping-grounds of the anthropoids. Little by little his absences from the tribe grew in length as he wandered farther away from them, until finally he found himself a greater distance to the north than he ever before had hunted, and with water and ample game and fruit he felt not at all inclined to return to the tribe. Little Gobu Balu gave evidences of a greater interest in life, an interest which varied in direct proportion to the distance he was from the apes of Kerchak. He now trotted along behind Tarzan when the ape-man went upon the ground, and in the trees he even did his best to follow his mighty foster-parent. The boy was still sad and lonely. His thin little body had grown steadily thinner since he had come among the apes for while as a young cannibal he was not over-nice in the matter of diet, he found it not always to his taste to stomach the weird things which tickled the palates of epicures among the apes. His large eyes were very large indeed now, his cheeks sunken, and every rib of his emaciated body plainly discernible to whomsoever should care to count them. Constant terror, perhaps, had had as much to do with his physical condition as had improper food, 
Tarzan noticed the change and was worried. He had hoped to see his balu wax sturdy and strong. His disappointment was great. In only one respect did Gobu Balu seem to progress. He readily was mastering the language of the apes. Even now he and Tarzan could converse in a fairly satisfactory manner by supplementing the meager ape speech with signs. But for the most part Gobu Balu was silent other than to answer questions put to him. His great sorrow was yet too new and too poignant to be laid aside even momentarily. Always he pined for Maumea, shrewish, hideous, repulsive, perhaps she would have been to you or me, but to Tybo she was Mama, the personification of that one great love which knows no selfishness and which does not consume itself in its own fires. As the two hunted, or rather as Tarzan hunted and Gobu Balu tagged along in his wake, the ape-man noticed many things and thought much. Once they came upon Sabor moaning in the tall grasses. About her romped and played two little balls of fur, but her eyes were for one which lay between her great forepaws and did not romp, one who never would romp again. Tarzan read aright the anguish and the suffering of the huge mother cat. He had been minded to bait her. It was to do this that he had sneaked silently through the trees until he had come almost above her but something held the ape-man as he saw the lioness grieving over her dead cub. With the acquisition of Gobu Balu, Tarzan had come to realize the responsibilities and sorrows of parentage without its joys. His heart went out to Sabre, as it might not have done a few weeks before. As he watched her, there rose quite unbidden before him a vision of Momea, the skewer through the septum of her nose, her pendulous underlip sagging beneath the weight which dragged it down. Tarzan saw not her unloveliness. He saw only the same anguish that was Sabre's, and he winced. That strange functioning of the mind, which sometimes is called association of ideas, snapped Tika and Gazan before the ape-man's mental vision. What if one should come and take Gazan from Tika? Tarzan uttered a low and ominous growl as though Gazan were his own. Gobu Valu glanced here and there apprehensively, thinking that Tarzan had espied an enemy. Sabre sprang suddenly to her feet, her yellow-green eyes blazing, her tail lashing, as she cocked her ears, and raising her muzzle sniffed the air for possible danger. The two little cubs which had been playing scampered quickly to her, and standing beneath her peered out from between her forelegs, their big ears upstanding, their little heads cocked first upon one side and then upon the other. With a shake of his black shock, Tarzan turned away and resumed his hunting in another direction. But all day there rose one after another, above the threshold of his objective mind, memory portraits of Sabor, of Momea, and of Tika, a lioness, a cannibal, and a she-ape, Yet to the ape-man they were identical through motherhood. It was noon of the third day when Momea came within sight of the cave of Bukawai, the unclean. The old witch-doctor had rigged a framework of interlaced boughs to close the mouth of the cave from predatory beasts. This was now set to one side, and the black cavern beyond yawned mysterious and repellent. Momea shivered as from a cold wind of the rainy season. No sign of life appeared about the cave, 
yet Mamea experienced that uncanny sensation as of unseen eyes regarding her malevolently. Again she shuddered. She tried to force her unwilling feet onward toward the cave, when from its depths issued an uncanny sound that was neither brute nor human, a weird sound that was akin to mirthless laughter. With a stifled scream, Mamea turned and fled into the jungle. For a hundred yards she ran before she could control her terror, and then she paused, listening. Was all her labor, were all the terrors and dangers through which she had passed, to go for naught? She tried to steel herself to return to the cave, but again fright overcame her. Saddened, disheartened, she turned slowly upon the back trail toward the village of Mabonga. Her young shoulders now were drooped like those of an old woman who bears a great burden of many years with their accumulated pains and sorrows, and she walked with tired feet and a halting step. The spring of youth was gone from Amaya. For another hundred yards she dragged her weary way, her brain half paralyzed from dumb terror and suffering, and then there came to her the memory of a little babe that suckled at her breast and of a slim boy who romped, laughing about her, and they were both Tybo, her Tybo. Her shoulders straightened, she shook her savage head, and she turned about and walked boldly back to the mouth of the cave of Bukawai, the unclean, of Bukawai, the witch-doctor. Again from the interior of the cave came the hideous laughter that was not laughter. This time Momea recognized it for what it was, the strange cry of a hyena. No more did she shudder, but she held her spear ready and called aloud to Bukawai to come out. Instead of Bukawai came the repulsive head of a hyena. Momea poked at it with her spear, and the ugly, sullen brute drew back with an angry growl. Again Momea called Bukawai by name, and this time there came an answer in mumbling tones that were scarce more human than those of the beast. "'Who comes to Bukawai?' queried the voice. "'It is Momea,' replied the woman. "'Momea, from the village of Mabonga, the chief.' "'What do you want?' "'I want good medicine, better medicine than Mabonga's witch-doctor can make,' replied Momea. "'The great white jungle god has stolen my Tybo, and I want medicine to bring him back, or to find where he is hidden, that I may go and get him.' "'Who is Tybo?' asked Bukawai. Mamea told him. "'Bukawai's medicine is very strong,' said the voice. Five goats and a new sleeping mat are scarce enough in exchange for Bukawai's medicine.' Two goats are enough,' said Mamea, "'for the spirit of barter is strong in the breasts of the blacks.' The pleasure of haggling over the price was a sufficiently potent lord to draw Bukawai to the mouth of the cave. Mamea was sorry, when she saw him, that he had not remained within. There are some things too horrible, too hideous, too repulsive for description. Bukawai's face was of these. When Mamea saw him she understood why it was that he was almost inarticulate. Beside him were two hyenas, which rumor had said were his only and constant companions. They made an excellent trio, the most repulsive of beasts, with the most repulsive of humans. Five goats and a new sleeping mat,' mumbled Bukawai. Two fat goats and a sleeping mat,' Mamea raised her bid. 
but Bukawai was obdurate. He stuck for the five goats and the sleeping mat for a matter of half an hour, while the hyenas sniffed and growled and laughed hideously. Mamea was determined to give all that Bukawai asked if she could do no better, but haggling is second nature to black barterers, and in the end it partly repaid her, for a compromise finally was reached, which included three fat goats, a new sleeping mat, and a piece of copper wire. "'Come back to-night,' said Bukawai, "'when the moon is two hours in the sky.' then will i make the strong medicine which shall bring taibo back to you bring with you the three fat goats the new sleeping mat and the piece of copper wire the length of a large man's forearm i cannot bring them said momaya you will have to come after them when you have restored taibo to me you shall have them all at the village of mabonga bukawai shook his head i will make no medicine he said until i have the goats and the mat and the copper wire momaya pleaded and threatened but all to no avail finally she turned away and started off through the jungle toward the village of mabonga how she could get three goats and a sleeping mat out of the village and through the jungle to the cave of bukawai she did not know but that she would do it somehow she was quite positive. She would do it or die. Tybo must be restored to her. Tarzan, coming lazily through the jungle with little Gobu Balu, caught the scent of Bara the deer. Tarzan hungered for the flesh of Bara, not tickled his palate so greatly, but to stalk Bara with Gobu Balu at his heels was out of the question, so he hid the child in the crotch of a tree where the thick foliage screened him from view and set off swiftly and silently upon the spoor of bara tybo alone was more terrified than tybo even among the apes real and apparent dangers are less disconcerting than those which we imagine and only the gods of his people knew how much tybo imagined he had been but a short time in his hiding-place when he heard something approaching through the jungle he crouched closer to the limb upon which he lay and prayed that tarzan would return quickly his wide eyes searched the jungle in the direction of the moving creature what if it was a leopard that had caught his scent it would be upon him in a minute hot tears flowed from the large eyes of little tybo the curtain of jungle foliage rustled close at hand the thing was but a few paces from his tree his eyes fairly popped from his black face as he watched for the appearance of the dread creature which presently would thrust a snarling countenance from between the vines and creepers. And then the curtain parted, and a woman stepped into full view. With a gasping cry, Tybo tumbled from his perch and raced toward her. Momea suddenly started back and raised her spear, but a second later she cast it aside and caught the thin body in her strong arms crushing it to her she cried and laughed all at one and the same time and hot tears of joy mingled with the tears of tybo trickled down the crease between her naked breasts disturbed by the noise so close at hand there arose from his sleep in a nearby thicket numa the lion he looked through the tangled underbrush and saw the black woman and her young he licked his chops and measured the distance between them and himself a short charge and a long leap would carry him upon them. He flicked the end of his tail and sighed. 
A vagrant breeze swirling suddenly in the wrong direction carried the scent of Tarzan to the sensitive nostrils of Bara the deer. There was a startled tensing of muscles and cocking of ears, a sudden dash, and Tarzan's meat was gone. The ape-man angrily shook his head and turned back toward the spot where he had left Gobu Balu. He came softly, as was his way. Before he reached the spot he heard strange sounds, the sound of a woman laughing and of a woman weeping, and the two which seemed to come from one throat were mingled with the convulsive sobbing of a child. Tarzan hastened, and when Tarzan hastened only the birds and the wind went faster. And as Tarzan approached the sounds he heard another, a deep sigh. Momea did not hear it, nor did Tybo, but the ears of Tarzan were as the ears of Bara the deer. He heard the sigh, and he knew, so he unloosed the heavy spear which dangled at his back. Even as he sped through the branches of the trees, with the same ease that you or I might take out a pocket-handkerchief as we strolled nonchalantly down a lazy country lane, Tarzan of the Apes took the spear from its thong that it might be ready against any emergency. Numa the lion did not rush madly to attack. He reasoned again, and reason told him that already the prey was his, so he pushed his great bulk through the foliage and stood eyeing his meat with baleful, glaring eyes. Momea saw him and shrieked, drawing Tybo closer to her breast, to have found her child and to lose him all in a moment. She raised her spear, throwing her hand far back of her shoulder. Numa roared and stepped slowly forward. Mamea cast her weapon. It grazed the tawny shoulder, inflicting a flesh wound which aroused all the terrific bestiality of the carnivore, and the lion charged. Mamea tried to close her eyes, but could not. She saw the flashing swiftness of the huge oncoming death, and then she saw something else. She saw a mighty naked white man drop as from the heavens into the path of the charging lion. She saw the muscles of a great arm flash in the light of the equatorial sun as it filtered, dappling through the foliage above. She saw a heavy hunting spear hurtle through the air to meet the lion in mid-leap. Numa brought up upon his haunches, roaring terribly, and striking at the spear which protruded from his breast. His great blows bent and twisted the weapon. Tarzan, crouching and with hunting-knife in hand, circled warily about the frenzied cat. Momea, wide-eyed, stood rooted to the spot, watching, fascinated. In sudden fury Numa hurled himself toward the ape-man, but the wiry creature eluded the blundering charge, sidestepping quickly, only to rush in upon his foe. Twice the hunting-blade flashed in the air, twice it fell upon the back of Numa already weakening from the spear-point so near his heart. The second stroke of the blade pierced far into the beast's spine, and with a last convulsive sweep of his forepaws, in a vain attempt to reach his tormentor, Numa sprawled upon the ground, paralyzed and dying. Bukawai, fearful lest he should lose any recompense, followed Momea with the intention of persuading her to part with her ornaments of copper and iron against her return with the price of the medicine, to pay, as it were, for an option on his services, as one pays a retaining fee to an attorney, for, like an attorney, Bukawai knew the value of his medicine, and that it was well to collect as much as possible in advance. The witch-doctor came upon the scene as Tarzan leaped to meet the lion's charge. 
He saw it all and marveled, guessing immediately that this must be the strange white demon concerning whom he had heard vague rumors before Momea came to him. Momea, now that the lion was past harming her or hers, gazed with new terror upon Tarzan. It was he who had stolen her Tybo. Doubtless he would attempt to steal him again. Momea hugged the boy close to her. She was determined to die this time rather than suffer Tybo to be taken from her again. Tarzan eyed them in silence. The sight of the boy clinging, sobbing to his mother, aroused within his savage breast a melancholy loneliness. There was none thus to cling to Tarzan, who yearned so for the love of someone, of something. At last Tybo looked up, because of the quiet that had fallen upon the jungle, and saw Tarzan. He did not shrink. Tarzan, he said in the speech of the great apes of the tribe of Kerchak, do not take me from Mamea, my mother. Do not take me again to the lair of the hairy tree-men, for I fear Tog and Gunto and the others. Let me stay with Mamea, O Tarzan god of the jungle. Let me stay with Mamea, my mother, and to the end of our days we will bless you and put food before the gates of the village of Mabonga, that you may never hunger. Tarzan sighed. Go, he said, back to the village of Mabonga and Tarzan will follow to see that no harm befalls you. Tybo translated the words to his mother, and the two turned their backs upon the ape-man and started off toward home. In the heart of Momea was a great fear and a great exultation, for never before had she walked with God, and never had she been so happy. She strained little Tybo to her, stroking his thin cheek. Tarzan saw and sighed again. For Tika there is Tika's Balu, he soliloquized. For Sabor there are Balus, and for the She-Gomangani, and for Bara, and for Manu, and even for Pamba the Rat. But for Tarzan there can be none, neither a She nor a Balu. Tarzan of the apes is a man, and it must be that man walks alone. Bukawai saw them go and he mumbled through his rotting face, swearing a great oath that he would yet have the three fat goats, the new sleeping mat, and the bit of copper wire. End of chapter 5